I'm Andrew Faust, here with Permaculture Perspectives, and today you're going to hear an excellent interview with Kenneth Asmus, who started Oikos Trees, one of the really foundational tree crop supply nurseries coming out of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and David and I had a really quite inspiring and interesting conversation with Ken that I think you're going to really enjoy. We talk about the founding of Oikos, what's happening with this property, and what the future vision is. So enjoy this episode of Permaculture Perspectives. David Harper and Andrew Faust interviewing Kenneth Asmus of Oikos, Tree Crops, Nurseries, and the future of tree crops in North America. Kenneth. How's it going? Great. Hey, Ken. How's it going? All right. We're doing it. Yeah, we're here. Everybody looks good. Great to have you here for our also our uh, our podcast. We're stacking functions in true permaculture fashion and excellent and recording our conversation because we're we're just inspired and and excited to get to spend some time with you really because you've been a a real leader in this work for a long time. I mean, I've I've admired your your nursery and your catalog and brought it to <laughs> yeah. permaculture classes for years. I mean, I love the name Oikos. It's yeah. always been, you know, it's such an important awareness to have language help us get back to the the home and what it what it means to to live in a place. So yeah, yeah it's, it's really an honor to to have you here to to spend some time to hear more about your work and and to learn from you too some of the opportunities that you see out there for for our work with with permaculture living lands trust and that's part yeah, of what you know like to get into with you but uh absolutely yes yes yeah, so, so thank you okay and so you you started oikos i was reading on your on your site there uh, 82 you started the plant yeah so yeah i actually um i had graduated from college in 1979 and just a year after that, not even a year, I got married and started having a family. And um, within the next, in a couple of years, I was looking for land to buy, to purchase. And I found a, a field. It was, a, it was used at one time as a pasture for cows. And I think there may have been corn planted there, but mostly it was just a pasture uh, hayfield and it was being harvested mostly for that and when I got it it was um wide open <laughs> it was just uh grass and no one else wanted the land it was 13 acres it was too small to really do anything with the fruit farmers in the area mm-hmm. so I bought the, I bought the land on a land contract and then uh that kind of gave me a focus for you know starting uh, here in the southwestern Michigan. I'm originally from Saginaw, Michigan, and my father and a partner of his had, we had two farms, Christmas tree farms. One was 130 acres, which maybe out of that 130 acres, we had 30 acres or so in Christmas trees. And then we bought a bigger farm that was 400 acres and maybe 250 or so or 300 was Christmas trees. 
So my brother, that was kind of in our family business, the tree farming yeah. thing. Yeah. So yeah. I can do it on a much smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved or when I stayed here in the Kalamazoo, Michigan area, southwestern Michigan, and I really like the rolling hills. We have a lot of rolling hills. It's like a glacial moraine. And uh, so I really enjoyed that, my farm, because it was so hilly. And um, so that's... Like drumlins or what type of, are they like, yeah, are they drumlins, the hills? I don't know. It's like what? a glacial topography where they yeah. drop out silton sediments in these like long, thin kind of uh, profiles. We have them here in the Hudson Valley. That's part of why I asked. I think there's some parts of my farm that are like that. The yeah. ridge, the ridge kind of mirrors what used to be the shoreline of Lake Michigan. Oh, and okay. oh, there's like the highest point um, in the county is not very far from me. And these ridges kind of flow through there in that area. And so there's a lot of grape vineyards in that area. It's naturally good for that the soil is pure sand it's almost like oh, dunes. Sandy. Yeah. yeah so and cherries do people grow cherries around there too is that yeah there's there's cherries, uh sour cherries and um peaches a little bit farther towards the lake there's uh-huh. peach orchards and a lot of apple orchards a lot of fruit processing companies now yeah. foods welches um various other ones right. in the area that yep so that's where I'm, that's where my farm is located. So <laughs> in the middle of all that. Are they chemically intensive? Yeah. The fruit, oh yeah. So yeah. The, during, during my um, earlier days, I would um, hire myself out as a pruner and I would go to apple orchards and prune apples. And um, so during the winter, I did that for quite a while. Um and so there, I got to know apple farmers and other types of farmers through that fruit farming. And I really wanted to have a fruit farm. I love fruit farming. But yes, it was, it's so chemically intensive to grow fruit. And there really wasn't an alternative back then, really. Um, once you bought a fruit farm, you had to pretty much do what everyone else was doing. It was it was kind of dangerous. My brother and I almost bought, we tried to figure out how we could buy a fruit farm, but it was kind of expensive. And when we looked at the amounts of money that people were making, yeah. and he was working in a pharmaceutical company at the time, and we're mm-hmm. like, boy, there's not there's not a lot of money in fruit farming, you know. Yeah, right. But maybe the bigger ones there could be. But um, so that, that um, area is known for um, certain fruits that have been there since uh, the late 1800s or maybe even a little before. And so that's kind of the history of that area is um, still pretty, there's there's still fruit farms, but not like there was because it's so expensive to get into. I mean, I don't think anyone comes out of school now and goes, I want to be a fruit farmer or a nut farmer. Um mm-hmm. So really, permaculture is an alternative for people that want to have some sort of um, attachment or, you know, integration of their life into some sort of fruit or nut farming. Right, right. And so, yeah, what what uh, brought you to the to the term permaculture? What what's your history background? Anything you'd like to share about 
the you know the practice of permaculture as as a methodology as a school of thought body literature what yeah i'd lo love to hear about your background in well the the one thing that caught my attention was the the idea that you could make nature you know more naturally productive or harness the mm -hmm. power of nature so the mm -hmm. idea of uh of that appealed to me i think because in high school and a little bit in college i would uh do these uh things where i go out into the somewhere and um just not take any food with me and see if i could survive on what i would find and i used to take a lot of those edible wild books with me i had a ton of those i still have them and my farms in saginaw my family's farm i kind of use that as kind of a laboratory for testing a lot of things and trying to see what they what people used to eat or what's available on the land. And uh, so I was curious about cultivating a lot of those crops. Um, and so that's kind of the, the natural thing is, well, permaculture uses these crops in its designs to create naturally more productive environments that humans can take advantage of or use for as a food source. And mm -hmm. so that, that kind of appealed to me more than the fruit farm because the fruit farm is so strict and you're just so, enamored with providing fruits for the general population and you're part of a bigger market. So it's almost like, well, that's nice and everything, but I only have 13 acres, so I can't provide too much. But uh, the, um, the thing that really caught my attention when I was younger was just the fact that um, there were so many things that you could taste and so many flavors and you would not find those uh, things available uh, today. So I think it's just the, the idea of the, the experience of tasting something that is unique and delicious, mm. you know, so that's really kind of how I got in, in more and more involved with that. And did you come across the term in, in books, in writings? Did you, have you yeah. talked to any, you know, <laughs> practitioners of it that you're friends with? Yeah, so the first the first thing was um, Bill Mollison's books when those first came out. Yeah, I got those books, and um, I was very curious about that. I thought this is really a great idea to be able to make designs uh, with that, but I didn't know how that would be applied on a broader scale at that time. Mm -hmm. I had mm -hmm. some questions about that, and then the other the other part of it was the. Um, there was a lot of writers, even uh, Gene Lodgkin's, Lodgkin, for yeah. instance, that was, right. yeah. So sometimes people would call me um, and I got to talk to him for quite a long time. Um, this was before yeah. the internet. And uh, so I got a, ch a chance to meet people in that arena, so to speak, you know, that were right. Right. Uh, experimenting with things. And then, I also got a chance to meet um, people in the fruit industry through the North American Fruit Explorers and the Northern Nut Growers Association. So I would frequently go to those annual meetings. Yeah. And at, at that time, you could go to university settings, see what they were experimenting on and what they were creating for the fruit industry or how people were doing that. And through my conversations with many of these fruit growers, a lot of them had home orchards. Mm -hmm. And these home orch orchards were more or less kind of experimental in many ways. You know, they were growing right. things that 
no one knew what it was. And uh, so I became very fascinated with what was put in the category as minor fruits. And then minor fruits were more or less like fruits that were not really commercial to any extent. Mm-hmm. And so I was very uh, curious about that. <laughs> what, are, what are some of your favorites of those? Well, the one that that I'm thinking of right now that I've just started harvesting is meddlers. So I, I really like meddlers. Oh, yeah. And they like have a medieval fruit, right? Yeah. And yeah. I was like, well, at what time did people stop growing these? But, you know, there's a certain they have to be really mushy to be enjoyable and, right. you know, you process them a certain way. Um, and same, a lot of these fruits, that's what really the, the secret is, is the processing, how you're mm-hmm. going to harm that. And for me, I frequently, my mom taught me how to make jam uh, very early. So I was always making jam with these things and then giving them as Christmas gifts or whatever. Wherever I went, I gave those jars to people. <laughs> I, I still do. Right. So yeah, uh, I enjoy that. And the same with uh, black all viburnum or something like that. You know, how are you going to use something that has a bony seed in it and doesn't have a lot of fruit and it's kind right. of... You know, so but it's just enjoyable to to uh, to give those out. And then when I used to give talks, I would take this jams with me, yeah. or what was a syrup or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, and then give it to people to to taste during the talks afterwards. Yeah, and so I really enjoyed doing that, sharing that with people. So it's med- medlar is like a mid story tree, isn't it? Yeah, you know. It's a, um, the actual tree, if you grow from seed, uh, is like a, it's almost identical to a hawthorn and it even produces colonies. Hmm. Uh, my plantings after 30 years started growing in other spots um, around it. So it's oh, runner cool. roots. Yeah. yeah. So it's a lot like uh, hawthorn in many ways. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you grow hawthorn there? Yeah, I have some types of hawthorn too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, the species of hawthorn I kind of winnowed down because of the disease things with hawthorn, but the Russian hawthorn yeah. um, has really a lot of skin to it. It's real red. It makes a really good syrup. And um, there's some other ones that I have, but nothing really. Those are the two. The, the Russian author is so productive that that's the one that has really outshined all the other ones. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ken, I'm curious to know a little more about how you really went into the commercial side of your nursery. Um, you know, did you really start more as a hobbyist who then develops a business around your hobby or how did that happen? Well, it's, it, it wasn't, and it still isn't really a good business model because what you're doing is you're producing something that you hope someone will buy mm-hmm. or be, I mean, maybe you're excited about it and you're hoping is you go, well, I'm going to produce this and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And um, so there can be a lot of waste in that. And for a while when I was doing it, when I first started, I was doing more of a wholesale type of thing and the price is very low. So there's not a lot of money to be made, but there was a couple crops that I did very well in because no one else was producing them. And so either the mail order companies or maybe it was used in a um, 
some sort of uh, design and build thing for a company. You know, I sold a lot of trees initially, but eventually then that market would become saturated and some other company would grow it in super bulk. And then that would be the end of it. (laughs) You know, it would just fade off and they would stop buying. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the crops that took up a lot of space in my four acre nursery, which is at the base of a hill there, um, were, were wasted. There were some, it was good. We sold out every year. And then others, it was much, a lot of it was wasted. And I talked to other wholesale nurseries and they were, uh, they had the same issue, Um, but they had more equipment and more help so they could till those crops under and start over with something else. And for me, it was like yanking it out with a shovel. So, (laughs) so it was a lot of work doing that. And the, the thing was that the, during that time, I was like, you know, I've got all these trees I should at least try to look at them from the standpoint of maybe I could improve on this a little bit and make selections. And so that was at the beginning of where I could look at a population of plants and take the things from that and put them out uh, surrounding my farm there on the rest of the surrounding the nursery. So I would take them out back and I would try to grow. And it allowed me to experiment with a t- many, many things. I would cycle through those and big and, fairly sizable populations of them too. Mm-hmm. And so that in itself was very um, beneficial, but the selling part was not because you're throwing so much away and the time and the money mm-hmm. and the labor involved. And um, so that was not good. Eventually I gave up that wholesale portion and I lost uh, quite a few customers in that transition, but there was by, by the year 2000 or so I started, getting a little more tech savvy and getting help with that. And eventually I ended up with a store online. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was really the beginning of like, whew, you know, I dodged a bullet, so to speak, because I was producing a catalog, which cost quite a bit of money. And then the mailing of those in this production of those that had a certain expense, which was always going up, <laughs> right, right. but it was love doing those catalogs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it taught me a little bit about printing and design from the people that I had hired to help me with that. And so now I'm doing a book. And so that the catalog is really kind of helping me do my final catalog, which is a book. So mm-hmm. I kind of like the idea of being able to make it so when people read it, they go, this is kind of funny. You know, if people laugh, I'm like, well, I yeah. they might. I taught them a little bit about plants and they thought it was funny, some joke I put in there. Because I, initially I had the funnier catalog, then later I became more serious. But I, because <laughs> I didn't have room for jokes, I had right. to take the, but I, <laughs> I had to trim down the, uh, the amount of writing. So mm-hmm. that was, that's why certain things fell out of that. But I also mm-hmm. got to highlight other growers that worked with certain plants. I found there was a huge number of people that I met that worked with certain genuses, you know, they were, they would, um, they would create something or find something for some industry. And it was amazing, you know, the things that they would find and do, but 
they were just, it was just cast aside. Mm -hmm. And I was like, boy, that's frustrating. You know, there's people have developed something or improved something almost like a technology, but yet not adopted. And, and I, I found that to be very true with many of the things that I've, I did is it's nice. It's great. Good for you. Can pat myself on the back or anyone else to pat themselves on the back. But, you know, eventually many people would leave the industry they are working in, whether it was forestry or whether it was uh, some land related thing, because it was just, it was not rewarding to them financially and otherwise. So they went into, you know, something else. Mm -hmm. So, but the, the idea of, um, finding and distributing new plants for for me was just that you you had a catalog and the average order was around $60 or maybe $80. And we sent out so many thousands of orders uh, over the course of all those years. And that was kind of the average Oikos tree crops order. It was just a small backyard thing. People would buy 10 plants of something, put them in their backyard. They would do something with the sun chokes some ground nuts, you know, yeah, and yeah. that was all tree crops. And that, that was, I enjoyed that. And it allowed me to experiment while I was doing that too. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's Oikos in a, in a nutshell right there. <laughs> what were, do, you, do you recall some of the, uh, the genuses that people did work in that then they just didn't, didn't end up? Yeah, there was, out. there was a lot of them. It, one of the things that caught my attention there was a guy who I met that um, was working with popple trees. Uh-huh. And um, the reason was for, for paper production. Yeah. But the, these large paper companies, they, they can't change. They have a certain model. And the same with forestry, too. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a certain model. And you said, well, look, instead of harvesting this, and letting it regrow, why not try setting up, you know, something else like uh, with this particular popple tree, which would shave off 10 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, right. Or 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Said, yeah. Look, I, I developed this. We, we did research on it. It was published and right. it would, it would, yeah. it would go nowhere. Right, because it so, costs too much to retool. Yes, Isn't yeah, that it? Well, yeah, and so yeah. you you realize that some industries now maybe maybe this is catching up to them now. I mean, what we're seeing on the on the news, but some industries really refuse to change; they just don't care. And so people are involved with those bigger industries, and the nursery industry is one of those in many ways, because if you create a new variety of a plant it's extremely difficult to get it to market and then have it sold in bulk in any sort of fashion. It's just so many people have developed great plants and they just fall into the wayside, you know, mm-hmm. don't. So, and oaks, oaks are one of those genuses where um, like Miguel Marquez, who is a convenience store owner in Texas that loved oak trees and yeah. he began and pollination. He began to create varieties from them, and I ended up with his kind of his selections only because I showed interest in in the edible acorn, you know, and uh, 
But what he did was he made it possible for uh, a, a new generation of people to take a look at that. And then now I'm selling the acorns from those and having them tested more. So the idea is, you know, that was 40 years ago. <laughs> and uh, But I think the idea is then you have this um, interest by one person that develops something and it's it's extremely unlikely that that will reach a broader audience in a single lifetime. I, I don't know. Um, often I think they're not even going to be mentioned uh, in any sort of meaningful way. And that, that kind of drives me nuts, actually. Hmm. And so that was one of the things I was going to try to focus on was these unsung heroes of horticulture because they've done so much in such mm -hmm. a so little time mm -hmm. and, but i see that even with in michigan here with uh whether whether it's carwin davis with the pawpaw or or with uh, cecil ferris with his hazelnuts you don't see their names mentioned at all and their mm -hmm. varieties are not there rarely offered but so, a little bit with corin davis's but mm -hmm. it's i find it frustrating I, I think they de they develop something they should be at least be mentioned. But even the school, MSU, would never mention their name if they did a newsletter or something. They wouldn't even mention the name that he contributed that to this professor or help this person or help that person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know. It just it makes me a little upset. I, I was reading about alfalfa and the introduction of alfalfa. And to the United States, and it was done by this uh, farmer by the name of Grimm and in Minnesota, and he developed this whole alfalfa. I mean, all of alfalfa is because yeah. of him, and yet no one knows who he is. And I know they have a rock with a bronze plaque on it, his farm in Minnesota, and one of my friends go, went there and visited. It's like paying homage, you know, to the fourth right. largest up in the United States. Right. But the idea is that, you know, here's someone that develops something so important. And um, yet most people don't know who that is, you know. And but I, what, what do you think? Is that like a cultural lack of interest in in plant work that people do? Is it a, yeah, what do you, what do you attribute that to? Why do you think that is? Well, I don't think, um, I don't, you're not looking at the, at, you know the Bill Gates of the world because they're not they were they were alive at a time when you know they were discovered by accident almost mm -hmm. uh, so but the other part of it is their um, their research never was published really you know it wasn't published or put into a public you know really yeah. yeah sort of mm -hmm. record or understanding it, mm -hmm. it, it it's, becomes kind of a subset of a subset um type of thing yeah yeah I don't really know the solution for that but i i think one of them is just to write about write about it and put it in writing where someone other people can read about their lives um is, is that some of what you're putting in your book yeah so there's there's a because people, one thing about the nursery was that people call me uh, for all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, that's kind of interesting. You know, that's how many plants? Like this one guy uh, that I 
Matt, and he's passed away now, had over over 4,000 different types of plants mm. on his property that he developed. I mean, that's crazy. Who would do that? Mm-hmm. You know, why? And when I got to talk to him more and got to know him and his daughter, it was just fascinating. I mean, how are you going to preserve that? Uh, yeah. That's a question. That's something that you probably that's exactly right. That is the kind of thing that we've put together the Permaculture Living Lands Trust to be able to help to address that type of pattern of these plantings just ending up disappearing into the ether and not being preserved. Because really each yeah. one is like, you know, when people have spent decades selecting for that those varieties that really do lend themselves to forest gardens and community food forests, uh, yeah. that free crop agriculture, then there really is a community um, inheritance there that can be lost if, if there's no protection for those sites. So we truly view yeah. it as like a seed bank, but you know, a genetic seed bank and 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 cuttings bank for um, for people to learn from and to really get those plants and the, those genetics out into the landscape where they can be more useful. So right. um, I know that's what part of what drew us to want to speak with you is hearing some of your thoughts, you know, after running a nursery that really did a fine job of getting good genetics out into the landscape mm-hmm. that you're, you know, you may have some thoughts on non-commercial approaches to um, deploying these these varieties and, and would love to hear a little more of your thoughts on that. What 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 does it mean to really aspire to be a nursery uh, man or woman or, or nursery person? Yeah. Or what does it mean to just become part of uh, food forests and forest garden um, public benefit effort that just gets the land uh, restored wherever wherever we can with these crops, free crops. Yeah. So in that, in that, what you're describing and what you're just mentioned is that that aspect of it, just being in one place is, I mean, is it's nice and everything, but it's it's not really a good idea because it's not going to last forever, mm-hmm. and you really want to have, like, for instance, if I thought I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, the records of what I planted and everything, I'm trying to update and uh, university is going to help me with it a little bit, I suppose, with um, mapping. So that's, that's yeah, yeah, I have kind of a, a good mapping system there, but nothing like what what's available today as far as the yeah. technology. Yeah, so true. Yeah. And so that that part is, you know, I've been working on a little bit the but the the real issue is um what what about outside of my farm could could there be other places where i mean it would be so simple and so inexpensive to mm-hmm. to be able to clothe the land with these with persimmons and pawpaws and plums and every type of tree imaginable and yeah. um yet the, from what I'm seeing in the regeneration movement, it's it's become more like an orchard. Right. So my my thought was, well, we need these repositories to create more orchards, or you know, you need a huge genetic diversity, and they're drawing on these very small research projects, right. whether it's at Missouri State or whether it's 
the land Institute or whatever, these are, it's, it's fine and everything, but it's not enough. And there needs to be more, what would be considered almost um, untended, um, right. untended plantings, because that's the level at which you want uh, things reproducing on their own to create these new varieties right right. Uh, and really land race i guess you could call it land totally yeah Yeah, with woody plants yeah yeah absolutely it's the land it's the land race philosophy of joseph lofthouse yeah Mm -hmm. exactly and boy that that part i think about that every day because Mm -hmm. i i'm i'm like man where can i go i mean it would take me it wouldn't take very much at all to to reproduce my farm from seed almost you could almost redo much of it very simply mm-hmm. um so and you see the money being spent on public landscapes that are purely ornamental and it's just absurd how much more of that could shift toward useful crop useful trees yes yeah and it, it's not and it's not just the ornamental things like i see i i've looked into that a little bit because one of my my employees work for these conservation uh based uh things and i'm like boy they people they throw so much money at the conservation industry yeah. for removal of plants for putting in new plants all of which really i've been to those places and i'm just it's so disappointing i don't know if you feel the same yeah. way but I mm-hmm. feel very yeah. disappointing, and we're not getting our money's worth. <laughs> yeah, our tax yeah. dollars work here, and you know I'm not I'm not a fan of those. I still haven't been. I'm hoping I can find a place that I think is, yeah. you know, yeah. it's make impact, and I don't see that. I well, see, right. yeah, and so much, so many of the communities where we live and the landscapes that we live in are what some urban planners might call shared landscapes. I mean, they're really there's a wild landscape, but there's also landscapes that have been altered for generations and centuries that we really yeah. have opportunities to bring ecology into these human landscapes while at the same time still having ways to to integrate with them into our food system, into our clean water, all of that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And there's no really, I mean, really, uh, there, there are some of them are are abandoned fields that haven't nothing's been done with them yeah that's right. there was a cornfield at one point um yeah. and so we're so, excited about that about the yeah the ways that a land trust can really work with people like yourself who have been at it for so long and and been providing these these varieties to get to get out into the landscape in a broader scale and then figuring out yeah. well who Whose land is that going to happen on? How I don't know. It, how much will it cost? Right. And how can yeah. we make that part of our our future here? Yeah, no, that, yeah. That, that's part of what we're working on. Exactly. Like we're not. Well, yeah, is is, you know, like one. Opportunity that we've identified is you look at all these um, conservation plantings that are done in riparian zones and stream corridors. And uh-huh. that's one that we've begun to focus on because there's already a lot of agreement that we could be planting out these deforested stream corridors with reforestation efforts but the plant palette that they're using right now 
is not really as interesting or useful as it could be. And so having worked on, like you're saying, you know, when, when we've seen these projects up close and volunteered to do the, the planting projects, we see they're planting a lot of pioneer species. They're planting a very small number of varieties of them. You know, it'll be a lot of willow or red maple or not even trees that take very long to show up. And if you just did nothing, a lot of these trees would be there anyway. Yes. You know, so, so we've been fortunate to have one project to get off the ground an example of this, where we told the state agency who supplies tree stock, first of all, we want you to include a lot of things like hackberry and persimmon and hazelnut, because those are all wild. They fit their genetic profile of everything needing to be native. And what we did was said, you know, we want you to stack the plant list to have more edibles that are wild. And then we volunteered to go into the plot and interplant it with named varieties of hickories, like the McAllister shellbark and the Henry shellbark and heartnut and butternut, so that we can begin to show, I think, you know, some of what it is that you're also imagining, right? Which is how do we begin to have it be something other than a curated home garden that's gone to the trouble to create this type of diverse polyculture. Can we take what you've done with Oikos as a template in effect and begin, and as a seed repository to reforest broader acreage in these same types of more thoughtful uh, assemblages of genetics? Yeah. 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 I think the, if you were to say, well, what is the use for that? And you'd say, well, people could hike there and then they could pick fruits and eat them. Exactly. They go, what? <laughs> yeah, also wildlife. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the stream yeah. buffer provides critical habitat for wildlife. People yeah. walking on a greenway or people paddling down the creek, as we often talk about, could be yeah. harvesting wild foods as part of their life and their quality of life right. for generations yeah. to come. Yeah. 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 That's actually a very, very good thought. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's that's what people do anyway for blueberries in Michigan or mm-hmm. something. They may go forage for those if they go up in the upper peninsula and there's a good crop mm-hmm. of blueberries. Right. Yeah. Maybe they'll go pick thimble berries or they'll, you know, people will look for morel mushrooms. You just really you're expanding the palate of food that an average person could just enjoy and harvest. And at the same time, you could also teach people about using the weedy plants, the people, the plants that people don't like, like autumala. Or or maybe you could say, look, you know, this has a health benefit to it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's uh, ideas that you could um, put to use on these, these abandoned fields that are just nothing's and to turn it into prairie, it it's not very. I I just I find that repulsive in many ways because it's you're not you're gonna burn this you know you're creating burning and then herbicide and it's just it I don't I'm not a fan of that. Hmm. Uh, so I I kind of wish that you know there was more attention focused on these crop plants that. Hmm. Um, that would fit into these systems. And then at the same time, a means of educating people how to use them. Right. 
And we, we know that so much of our cropland in North America is devoted to feeding animals. It's something like two thirds or three quarters of what we see in the fields is really not stuff you put on your table for humans yeah. to eat. So yeah. the idea of shifting more away from a, a, an animal centric diet and more toward polycultures that really can benefit all of us um, with an ecosystem that's a food ecosystem, that, yeah. that's really exciting. Uh, and that can happen with intergenerational change. So much farmland is changing hands now as people age out, as younger yeah. generations step in and want to do something that has a bigger impact than just grow row crops. Um, but curious, Ken, while we're kind of looking at the schedule here, I guess we have a little more time. Um, would love to hear more about your personal transition strategy for Oikos, for your land, uh, for passing on your knowledge base to to younger generations, I mean, how's that all coming together for you? It it's um it's it's very um, satisfying that I can have uh, people come and visit my farm and and I can show them around. Um, recently, I had thirty people visit from the um, Organic uh, Farming Association here in Michigan. That's and, great. Yeah, and so I enjoy that, um, but um, it's hard scheduling. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have, I don't have anyone in the office anymore to schedule things for me. Mm -hmm. So that that was difficult this year. Um, I still have, I think maybe a dozen or more people I haven't been able to get in. But um, that that portion of it, as far as the education goes, is the most enjoyable for me. Um, I just love taking people, oh, we're going to taste this, um, you know, taking people around, showing things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, that is like, the, that's like, wow, I just love doing that. Time just flies when I do that. Mm -hmm. and I, it's just fun. I, I don't talk very much usually. I just, you know, let's go over here. Uh, sometimes Wait. I explain to people how all these plants came together because it was kind of accidental. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that so cool you have your own living classroom that you've created over decades. Yeah, time. yeah, yeah. Pretty and awesome. it's it, <laughs> I, I do. Yeah. And then the other aspect of it is, um, is, you know, what am I going to give? You know, my wife and I did our, our thing recently where we're talking about um, our end of life things and, uh, you know, what are we going to do with the farm? And if you pass first, if I pass first, you know, so we've had this discussion and the nursery thing is very problematic in that the land hasn't, despite me planting lots of trees and making it, and there's a couple buildings on it. It's not worth that much money, uh, from the standpoint of just the land itself. So mm -hmm. then it comes to the point is, well, what is valuable to, on this land? You know, and I, and I can say, well, look at this or that, you know, I can show mm -hmm. uh, an Excel right, spreadsheet. Right. You're adding with, value. <laughs> yeah, I can Excel spreadsheet with, with about a thousand different species, but it doesn't really matter. So, you know, it's like, hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's some aspect of it that, I'm still kind of wrestling with as far as um, making it so that the farm can be used for that. But at the same time, there has to be a financial portion of that, that my daughter or one of my daughters would keep it 
whether they would sell it after I'm gone. I have no idea. There's no one in the family really interested with the nursery portion, which I understand. But mm -hmm. uh, but I I can see I can see that that to me just for me right now getting the seeds out it in more of a public yeah. arena is to me that I want to do that. That's right. exciting. That's your diaspora. Yeah. 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 I really want to leave, you know, um, okay, that's fine, you know, but let's, let's plant a couple thousand feet row of American persimmons today. Mm -hmm. And, and now that I've made all these mistakes, <laughs> I know uh, how to save time and do it and uh, make it much more successful. Yeah. Um, but it, I'm finding a, it's it's hard. It seems hard to find the audience for that. I don't know mm -hmm. what to say about that. Yeah. Well, could, could you share a little of your insights on those things? Mm -hmm. How you expedite it? What you know? Just a few off the top of your head that you could share with us about that. How to improve people's success? What are things you know? As and as a segue. Well, what would be an advice you would give to young nursery people or older people who just want to get into running a nursery? What's the advice you'd give folks? Well, the nurse, the nursery thing, it's fascinating because I've had uh, uh, co quite a few younger uh, nursery people call me because mm -hmm. uh, they're struggling uh, usually a little bit, or they they're trying to figure out where they're going to, you know, sell whatever it is they're producing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we discussed this um, not too long ago with someone, and there was a, an issue where they said, well, it seems like trees don't have any value. And I go, yeah, yeah, that's how people look at it. It's like, it's just something that you produce, but the value of it is based on on the product. You know, it's almost like it's a thing that has a price and it's the price is low yeah. so even the the bigger companies that are trying to do these regeneration uh things they're finding the same issues there's a shortage of trees of good trees mm -hmm. but at the same they're not willing to the, it seems like they're not willing to or somehow not pay for that mm -hmm. you know i'm like well i told one company I said, well, if the wholesale price doubles or triples, you'll probably break even with that price. Mm -hmm. But if you sell it at the current wholesale price for those things, it's you're not going to make any money on the plants. You might make money on something else that you're doing related mm -hmm. to the land, but not yeah. the plant because mm -hmm. it takes too much work. And in the past, there was all this, this labor force from uh, – I I don't know how much of that is there, but from from Mexico that used to come up and work the nurseries in the summer here in Michigan, mm -hmm. and there's still quite a bit of of uh, uh, immigrant labor here in Michigan, but that's yeah. harder to find, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so you have an issue with the labor force. The, yeah. uh, the I mean, just counting trees, sorting trees, is a is a huge thing, but the uh, uh, going back to the to the being a nursery, it's it's um it's almost like something that people are doing uh, in different ways on social media now, which is kind of good. I like that um, they have a they have a, a group of a group of uh, followers. They're mm -hmm. 
buying from them. They may have a YouTube channel, which brings in a lot of revenue for advertising. They have more people coming in. So it's more than just the nursery. It's the people behind the nursery Mm -hmm. that, that I say, well, your face should be on the, why don't I see your face? I remember someone who had a catalog. I go, I don't see your face. You need Mm -hmm. to put face. Yeah. He didn't, Right. He didn't like that. But I was like, <laughs> and the other thing, I was kind of razzing him a little bit. Yeah. You have to abandon this name. The name is no good, you know. And so because they would tell me their stories. And I go, all right, well, we'll meet next week and then we'll go over this. Mm-hmm. And then right. I'd write down things and then I'd. But the idea is that you have to have all these things come together so people will follow you. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you create a buzz around what you're doing mm-hmm. and. And then also, then people will buy the things that you offer for sale. Yeah. You know, on the on that, I wonder your thoughts about cooperative, you know, producer cooperatives, because, you know, we've seen success stories with other farm-based businesses that are cooperatively run to share the risks and share the rewards, and especially to help get marketing done and get the plants distributed more widely. Yeah. Uh, Friends of ours in Pennsylvania, you may have heard of the Keystone Tree Crops Cooperative and right idea of value-added processing of tree crop harvests. So I think there's yeah. some real that we see as a as a new land trust dealing with the land base for these types of things. We're excited about, you know, not just the idea of working with one nursery operator, but really a cooperative of people that are designing, growing, installing, and maintaining oh, yeah. sites. Yeah, especially if you can maintain, you know, together control the inventory mm-hmm. and know who has what, yeah, what they can produce in advance, you know, yeah. and that is super valuable. That'd be really fantastic. If a community, a local government wants to establish its own food forest, then these are the growers, these are the designers, the installers, the the stewards that can really help take that into the future. That's what we think. We feel good yeah. about that opportunity. So, are you seeing people that are thinking that way, as opposed to just going it alone as a single operator? No, I don't see what you're describing. I haven't run into that. I've mostly seeing independent operators mm. that have the same mindset I had when I was 20 years old. Mm. Uh, there's good, <laughs> which is that doesn't mean I'm stupid. It just meant right. that I was yeah. so, I was hyper focused on yeah. this thing. Yeah. Um, building up inventory and then right. selling later. Um, but but it, it, that's a very good idea because what happens is um, it, it would eliminate the this up and this up up and down and it would set you aside from these other large state nurseries mm-hmm. or yeah. set you aside from these mega wholesale nurseries that produce millions of trees. Mm-hmm. And you can say, look, these are folks that are doing this the old fashioned way, you know, they're, t- they're, they're, they're a few people, they're families, they're running because those are the one, those are the folks that it's difficult to, um, to maintain that for any length of period of time. Right. Now for right. me, I had a wife that was working full time, but she wasn't like at a job that was super wealthy or anything, or we made us a lot of wealth, but that was a state, I had a stable family life. Mm-hmm. So that plays a role too, actually. 
Um, you know, so having a stable family life, not spending too much money on one thing or the other. Um, I don't own a tractor. I've never owned a tractor. I've thought about buying one in the last couple of years, just because I'm a little older, it would save some time, but I just had shovels. I got a nice shovel collection though, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, uh, the idea is then, then you could, as a group, uh, manage and promote yourselves too. And that was one thing I could not get other people to go along with other nurseries to, to, to go and, okay, well, if you do this, then I'll do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, once in a while we would sell each other's um, uh, email list, mm-hmm. you know, and say, look, I got an email list of a thousand. Would you give me a thousand of your customers? Yeah. I'll give you a thousand of mine. Right. Uh, back before there was the thing where you, you weren't supposed to do that. And uh, so we we did that. Or sometimes it was actually physical addresses. Hmm. We go, look, give me a thousand of your names and I'll give you a thousand of mine. Right. And uh, I was surprised at how many people, how successful those trades were for me and for the other the other people, too, because people will buy things for a while and then they'll kind of, you know, they'll lose interest and they'll go into other things. Uh, But that's retail. But as far as using it on a broader scale, just. Is, there's so much more at stake as far as the resources to grow the trees. Right. And I'm really concerned that um, I think someone told me recently they had 100,000 trees of something. I think it was hickories and something else. I'm like, man, that's a lot of trees. You know, you better find a home for those. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. So that that concerns me, actually, because yeah. it's a waste, it's a huge waste, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then, as you were saying, you know, culturally, there's really not much value for trees. So there's also that further cycle to consider. How can we have older specimen ecologies come about, you know, rather than having landscapes constantly getting razzed to the ground? It's another consideration as a as a plant person, as a propagator. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. The thing about well, what's the longevity of these landscapes that we're creating? Are they now uh, vulnerable to development and to um, change in a way that could have been prevented or protected? That that's another piece of what we're looking at mm-hmm. with the permaculture land trust. Is how do we um, start to you know start to address some of the things that have happened to John Hershey's plantings in Pennsylvania? Oh right? yeah, somewhere yeah. David and I know each other from a history in the same part of Chester County that Buzz Fervor comes from that um, yeah. and Lisa DePiano, our uh, other board member here at, at the Permaculture Living Lands Trust is a, a professor over at UMass working and she, she's doing work with silva pasture plantings and chestnuts over there. Oh, very nice. That sounds good. But yeah, we're all, you know, the, the Hershey trees seem to be this interesting nexus because of the way yeah. they've been such a symbolic uh, example of what can occur to, say, beautiful, naturalized, uh, selected varieties of huh? 70-year-old, 80-year-old Hickans and McAllister and, you know. What, what was it like walking through there? It's, uh, well, um the, is it the, still there? It, it, yeah, there's still vestiges of it in parking lots surrounded by apartment complexes right in the center of Downingtown. 
And then there's a whole other planting up in Guthriesville where his homestead was. That's also an apartment uh, complex that we visited as well. And it's, it's kind of surreal. It's, it's great to see the trees there, but they feel almost out of place and at risk. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the, the Guthriesville (laughs) site, which is um, north of Downingtown, it's basically a, an, uh, conservation focused subdivision or a subdivision that has a lot of open space owned by a homeowners association and sure. you would think that would be a benefit as if it was designed around the trees but it they're just kind of there as sort of by chance and the people living in those homes they have so many people come down to visit to walk that land to harvest fruits and nuts uh, for propagation and it doesn't seem to really register to them that they would want to protect those trees or keep them, you know, yeah. as part of their own for their own benefit of picking persimmons up that are just rotting on the ground. I mean, there's yeah. incredible huh. variety and incredible yeah. flavor and, and and bounty of of food there that's just kind of not appreciated. So, as a land trust, we've even thought, well, what if we negotiated a conservation easement that said even though this is the open space owned by your homeowners association, what if we had an agreement that says those trees really can never be cut, you know, unless they come down on a storm or they're dead or diseased or dangerous. So yeah. how can we protect the genetic stock there? But it, it wow. just feels like it's kind of a stretch to do that. Yeah. I, we focused on properties that aren't as complicated, yeah. but have yeah. some similar kind of um, yeah. unique and valuable plantings on them. I, I, I would also want to share about them. Part of what is potent about those plantings is it's it's this bittersweet, poignant experience of being in a place where somebody like yourself, a hundred years ago, planted, you know, persimmons, pawpaws, honey locusts, and you're in a landscape that is one of these food forest ecologies that's naturalized, and yeah. and it's at risk. You know, and then that's the, one of the realities that we really have gotten um, a fire to begin to to find ways to protect those types of plantings in the future wow. and in the present so that yeah. they don't get held hostage to the sort of slings and arrows of development. Oh, yeah. 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 That's what happens. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Wow. So how, how can we, you know, bring together all of the history that you're part of and that many of these great growers and visionaries are part of and begin to to really protect the future that we'd like to see for uh, generations to inherit in these landscapes and and have these legacy plantings be able to to happen on a broader scale than as you're saying yeah. sim- simply say your little rectangle of land where you've been able to create a great yeah. example but now now what now how do we roll this out yeah. And yeah. And it, it's because I'm not working anymore, really, other than processing seeds. Even that would like today I was running apples and cleaning apples for seeds. And I'm like, you know, this is not very satisfying. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind doing it and everything, but I'm I'm just I constantly am thinking this. I don't they need to stop doing this. I need to do something else bigger. Uh, I look at the farm, like I'll walk around the farm and I'm going, this is just spectacular. Everything is so amazing. I just can enjoy my farm more now than ever. But then it 
Then the second part of that is what good is it if, if only I enjoy it? Right. Uh, it's not, it's like playing beautiful music and no one's listening. I mean, it's pathetic. Right. Right. It becomes kind of a self-absorbed sort of thing. But, I, you know, I find um, comfort in the people I can bring to my farm and show them things or, you know, have people taste things. So it's kind of a relief. <laughs> yeah. You know, one one last question I have for you, Ken, is, yeah. you know, I've, I've served on municipal planning commissions, so I've worked on that sort of volunteer uh, growth management of trying to make sure that as development happens, it's done in a way that still has some cultural and ecological benefit instead of just being a faceless suburb. And so as that kind of development continues to happen in urbanizing regions around the country, yeah. My, my question is, you know, if a progressive board, you know, county council, you name it, decides that they want forest gardens, they want community food forests, they want edible greenways and riparian buffers in there as a quality of life factor where they where they live, could there be contract growing for those types of projects where you know, over a three to five year period, different edible native fruits and nuts are grown out, planted, maintained. Um, you know, is that something you could see as as a direction forward for some more public facing projects? I, I think so. If the timeline can be shrunk a little bit so it's not such a long term, because I have there was a guy I met near not far from my farm who who got money to do exactly that it's on a college campus kind of in a city area and the idea was there was a trail running through it and he was very meticulous he got all the things the plants he wanted he got the cornelian cherries he got persimmons and he got pawpaws and he did all these things with it because he kept hammering home <laughs> to the board and to everyone else this is what you're gonna get you know, this is the result. And he spent, I think it was two or three years yeah. uh, working on that. The, the other aspect of it is could be uh, for me, and, and that would be uh, doing direct seed projects where you're direct seeding on large areas, right. tree seeds that have been. Um, and so that that's something I've, I've always thought it'd be way faster than trying to grow trees and then transplant them. And there might be some types of uh, ways of doing that. So yeah. I'm very much, I'm real focused on that. I've had a couple um, customers, one customer in particular is working on a big project with uh, beach plum. And the idea is then you could take the seed after it's stratified and put it directly into its permanent spot. Uh, so just like growing uh, corn or something, but yeah. but it's yeah. a tree or shrub. Right. So I, I can see that happening, but I also can see where these nurseries now can crank out so many plants in such a little spot, especially in these poly houses, in these right. blow mold plastic things. It wouldn't take much. I, mm -hmm. I've even talked to, um, before I closed my nursery, I was looking into this project using the folks that, um, sell annual plants, you know, the petunias, the marigolds. And I, I went in there in the wintertime. I said, could you grow for me like 10,000 beach plums or something? And they go, well, we could. 
<laughs> but we don't want to because we're just full of petunias. We got to grow these petunias. And I go, well, you know, how much would it cost if I, you know, if I, you know, you did a half a house, you know, you, you have to get in line because, you know, they're produ producing these things based on previous year's sale. And some houses, they don't allow anything to come in. And other ones that are more family run, uh, there might be a possibility. But there's so many ways that trees could be produced uh, quickly. Within a few months, you'd start them in February, and by mm -hmm. April, they're ready to go. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you could then have a, um, companies that normally don't produce trees produce them in a fashion that could be shipped very quickly in a truck to you right away. And you'd shave off all that time for producing the plant, which is another thing, you know, you're handling, counting, raising, all that takes a lot of time. So for some things I can see where, yes, I, and I'm, I'm all for, if you find something you think I'll ask Ken about, or have me fly me out there, I could probably, we could probably do these bigger projects right. over larger pieces of land doing direct seed. That's oh, that's great to hear. That's a great offer. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, yeah. Well, because we, we, we got to have at least one place. We say, well, we tried it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. We could see the results because I, I, I would be, uh, it would be amazing. I'm sure it would be fantastic. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I can, I'm looking forward to our next conversation and already see a couple topics I'd love to circle back and take more time with you on talking about the nursery operation, uh, you know, different. I'd love to, you know, I, I'm excited for your your career shift here to really, it sounds like, expand into the teaching realm and do a lot more of that. I think that's it's a lot more. Yeah, that's an exciting <laughs> thing yeah. that I also look forward to to continuing to to dialogue with you about ways that we can help with that ways that we could um, you know send students your way who we also encounter because we get lots of questions about these kinds of topics that you're much more experienced in and really just an honor to have you connect with us and hear hear about your work in this field and appreciate all that you've been doing and yeah. it's it's enjoyable for me i still enjoy it so it's thank you for giving me the opportunity to to share with uh with you my some of my inspiration that i've gotten from other growers yeah long before I, well so. and excited for your book right Looking forward to yeah that. yeah i'm still <laughs> awesome it took a lot of write. i had to just practice writing for a couple of years you know writing small articles and yeah. i it even took poetry classes and things that i wouldn't normally Oh, that's great. So I, I enjoyed to write. I enjoy writing. So, yeah. Well, long live the agroforestry commons. Yes. Long yeah. live the agroforestry commons. Yes. All right. Thank you, Thank you Kenneth. Thanks for your work. Hey. And we'll be in touch. Hey. Definitely. Okay. You have a good yeah. night. I'll let you know when we put this out. Excellent. I'll Healing. promote it. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank Excellent. you. Thank you, Thanks. sir. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Permaculture Perspectives. We really appreciate your time and attention to these critical issues of our times. And look for our next episode coming up where we're interviewing Michael Polarski, a longtime permaculture teacher who's worked 
in the field of restoration forestry and ecological forest management. Been a big inspiration of mine since my beginning adventures into permaculture. And give a listen for that as our next episode. Keep in touch.